0: You are walking down a familiar boardwalk. Tonight is a good night for boating. It's a crisp autumn night and the moon is hardly a sliver in the sky. Once a local plumber You now spend your days enjoying the riches from your nighttime enterprise. On the water, with just you, your boat, and your smuggled goods. You have a cargo hold full of alcohol. Illegal now in the United States. Law enforcement is hunting you. Fellow smugglers and hijackers are out for your cargo each voyage could be your last this is a day in the life of Ben Kerr originally from the Canadian town of Hamilton Ontario Kerr was what you might call an opportunist he began his smuggling business in 1918 at this time Canada had enacted a limited prohibition intended to last until the end of World War I. This is where Kerr started his smuggling escapades, smuggling alcohol from the United States into Canada. Canada had only recently begun post-war alcohol production when the United States went dry. As he already had an operation in place, it was a fairly simple matter for Kerr to flip the direction of a smuggling enterprise. He started with beer. I'm Maddie
1: Wary. I'm Adina Goldstein. And I'm Kathleen Love. And we are your hosts for Here You Are, Rochester Retold, episode 402, Bottles and Bootleggers.
2: Prohibition uh, was the result of a long-standing struggle uh, to uh, uh, get uh, men out of uh, bars and sober them up so they could be uh, productive husbands and fathers.
3: This is Morris Pierce, a professor in the History Department at the University of Rochester, who teaches a course on the history of Rochester and Western New York.
2: There was no penalties for uh, possessing alcohol. It was only for uh, selling it or uh, drinking it at a public place and all that stuff.
1: So, how far were Rotterdam's willing to go to keep alcohol flowing? And how much violence and crime were they willing to tolerate? <laughs>
2: Uh, Well, Rochester, interestingly, uh, uh, was then, and still largely is, a conservative place. They felt that this was a government meddling in a private decision. You know, if you wanted to go buy a bottle of rum and uh, and have fun with it, that was your business, not the government's. Uh, And so there was this uh, kind of schizoid attitude, uh, and people still recognize that, uh, uh, you know, it did cause damage, Uh, But this was a uh, personal, moral decision and uh, really was not the business of the government. And so uh, local mm, politicians in Rochester mm, just hoped it would go away for the most part. I mean, there were some who uh, uh, supported prohibition, but that seemed to be the uh, uh, kind of uh, odd man out.
3: When homegrown alcohol was banned, they looked for another way to source it. This gave rise to a new alcohol industry built upon organized crime.
2: Huge problem was that uh, large mobs came to control uh, the manufacturing and distribution and even the speakeasies, and they attempted to drive out the little guys. And so there'd be uh, murder and mayhem and all this uh, to control the trade.
3: Smugglers brought in illegal liquor from Canada, and Ben Kerr suddenly became a very well-known figure in the Rochester area. Once alcohol hit the shores, bootleggers ran it to speakeasies, yet this operation was more than a local phenomenon. Rochester became a center for the movement and distribution of illegal alcohol into the United States. Canadian distilleries often focused on filling larger orders from places like New York City and Boston, rather than smaller ones from Rochester and Buffalo. This left lake smugglers with only beer to smuggle during the early days of Prohibition. Once distilleries unofficially opened their doors to lake smugglers, Kerr primarily did his business with Corby's Distillery in Belleville, Ontario, the only operating distillery on Lake
0: Ontario. Naturally, distilleries and breweries did not want to run into the legal trouble that would come with them officially exporting alcohol to the United States. So, in order to get the alcohol for his shipment, Kerr had to go through a long and complicated legal process. First, the American distributor, a bootlegger, would travel to the Corby's head office at 1201 Sherbrooke Street West in Montreal. He would meet with the general manager, Harry Clifford Hatch... Hey Harry,
1: how's business? Not too bad. You Americans and your new law have been great for me.
0: ...and deposit a hefty sum of around 20 grand to ensure his credibility. Legally, the alcohol he secured would be headed to a shell company, likely in Mexico or Cuba. This would prevent a paper trail of their smuggling operation, which might have been used against them in an American court of law. The bootlegger would then specify the carrier of the inventory, who in our scenario is Ben Kerr.
1: Kerr would take his boat to Belleville, where he would meet Jimmy Boyle, the Corby worker in charge of shipping.
3: A truck from Corby's plant would then take the shipment to government docks where a customs officer would sign the paperwork. Workers from Corby's would then load wooden boxes of whiskey onto one of Kerr's boats. He was very protective of his boats and didn't want so much as a scratch on the mahogany trim. After securing his cargo, Kerr would then shake hands with J.W. Domage, the outside customs officer, and tip him around $10 to thank him for his services. The whiskey is now Kerr's to transport legitimately under Canadian law. The fact that his boats were far too small to travel across the Atlantic Ocean to Mexico or Cuba was ignored, as was the fact that his boats would be back at his boathouse in Belleville the next
0: day. The next step in Kerr's journey was the crossing. His favorite craft, the Barnabas, would carry 1,200 cases of whiskey or beer in a single trip.
1: Kerr made quite the impression on the locals of his chosen ports. Reg Powers, who worked on his father's farm in Prineer Cove, remembers that everyone was terrified of Kerr, saying that he always carried a big revolver and that We figured if he'd caught any of us in his boat, he'd shoot you. However,
0: smugglers were not the only criminals on the lake, and one of the most dangerous parts of the journey was the draw point. In the dead of night, Kerr was delivering cargo on a shore east of Rochester. He pulled his boat into shallow water, the bow facing into the lake and the engines idling so he could cut and run at a moment's notice. He was handing bags of ale over the sides of the boat to bootleggers, some in a small rowboat, and others wading out up to their waist to carry the bags to shore. It was business as usual. Then, hijackers who raided alcohol shipments had targeted Kerr's drop point. The bootleggers fled for cover as bullocks arced over their heads. Kerr picked up his rifle and immediately began to return fire, giving his associates a chance to get clear. In expert shot, Kerr drove the band of hijackers back down the beach on his own. They were at an impasse, and Kerr made the next move. Taking his boat 200 yards east, he landed quietly on the shore with his 303 rifle in hand a 12-gauge shotgun in the other, and a 45 revolver in his belt. He came up behind the hijackers, firing the three guns at random to sound like he had a whole band of men with him. Caught by surprise, the hijackers fled the shore. They had not taken a single case of alcohol. After Kerr had handed his cargo off to the bootleggers at the shore of
3: Lake Ontario and turned back for Hamilton, the Alcohol headed for the speakeasies.
1: Shrouded in mist and almost impossible to see from a distance, the Lower Falls cave in the city proper was occasionally stopped in Alcohol's journey to Rochesterians. Maddie and
3: I ventured down to Lower Falls to try to find the caves for ourselves.
0: yeah i couldn't get there (laughs) yeah okay okay, cool i tried to walk all the way down along the river but the water's too high and going too fast i eventually got to clearing and it was just the falls under the huge bridge and there was so much mist that i couldn't open my eyes to move forward so i had to stop just short of the cave so that's something that the smugglers probably experienced too. It must
3: have been super hard to get that close to the caves.
1: Man-made during Prohibition before the Genesee River was dammed, the cave was used to store alcohol before bringing it up to speakeasies on the street. Thanks to smugglers
0: like Kerr keeping a steady flow of alcohol coming into the city, Rochester had adopted speakeasy culture with fervor. Many of these locals were in the same places where Rochesterians had gone for alcohol before Prohibition. Some were in more subtle locations, in apartments, houses, garages, barbershops, social clubs, cigar stores, and hotels. In 1931, a raid uncovered half a barrel of beer from a supposed bookstore on Monroe Avenue that was secretly a speakeasy. College Town stands on what was once Benedict Spiegel's Hotel, which was raided four times during Prohibition. An exclusive location called The Viper Club was on the third floor of a building on East Avenue, now used by the IRS. Louis Dustin ran a beer flat, which was slang for a speakeasy hidden in an apartment or other private location on Swan Street, which is right by Eastman School of Music's Hatch
1: Recital Hall. You may wonder, how did all of these bars manage to avoid getting caught? Well, they had a few methods, some better thought out than others. One solution was to hide their identities by fronting as other businesses. Fancy naming schemes often came into play, such as calling themselves soft drink purveyors and secretly serving alcohol on the side. 1924 was a big year for raiding in Rochester. In March alone, Prohibition agents raided 24 speakeasies dismantled four breweries and poured 120 barrels or about 30,000 pints worth of beer into the sewers. But what happened after they got caught? Not very much. Even after being raided, most speakeasies paid a fine and simply reopened.
0: Despite participating in raids, law enforcement was unhelpful in curbing prohibition. In June of 1932, Four deputy sheriffs were suspended after being found drinking in an East Main Street speakeasy at 10 in the morning, with their uniforms on hand for their upcoming duty. A speakeasy even operated on Exchange Street, a stone's throw away from the RPD headquarters. Rochester became a hub for distributing alcohol even further
3: inland due to its convenient location on the shore of the lake and its easy access to waterways. This also made it a hub for organized crime networks composed of
0: mercenaries and violent men like Kerr. The sneaking, smuggling, and illicit drinking all came to a close when the 21st Amendment abolished Prohibition in 1933. Much like when it was first announced, Prohibition's end was met with little fanfare in Rochester. Many of the speakeasies that were open stayed open. One speakeasy owner is quoted saying, I don't think it was such a celebration. Hell, the saloons in Rochester were wide open anyway.
1: Although, life went on much as it had before after Prohibition ended in 1933. The end was not always as peaceful for the criminals who had kept alcohol moving during that period. Kerr himself would meet a mysterious and tragic end. His body would be found on the lake that made his career, floating lifelessly in the water. There was no big funeral for Kerr. His family, ashamed of having his crimes associated with their name, buried him under an alias. But the industry he eventually sacrificed his life for continues to this day. Rochesterians still maintain a strong drinking culture, and the same drinks made in speakeasies during Prohibition from alcohol that cur-smuggled across Lake Ontario are still made today, in local bars like Cure, The Daily Refresher, and Good Luck.
3: Here You Are is a podcast created by students at the University of Rochester. This episode was created by Maddie Wary, Adina Goldstein, and Kathleen Love. Our engineer was Maddie Wary, our lead researcher was Kathleen Love, and our head producer was Adina Goldstein. We'd also like to thank Morris Pierce for his interview. Here You Are is created using Faders, a collaborative online audio production workstation. It offers browser-based audio recording and editing all within an easy-to-use interface, all for free. Go check out Faders.io. The coordinating producer for this season of Here You Are is Celia Cano. The executive producers are Thomas Fleischman and Stephen Resner. And be sure to check out the other episodes of Here You Are Season 4, Rochester Retold at HereYouAre.com.